I'm Emily Elaine, and you're listening to Ninth Draft. I've been struggling to think of a good tagline for the show. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and I've had a hard time with committing to a decision, but I think I've finally made up my mind. Every episode, we touch base on the psychology behind what our readers need from our stories, and then dive into what that means for our writing. Learning the reader's needs and how to meet them within our own writing is a profoundly strategic process. Therefore, all of you who subscribe to this study are incredibly strategic writers. So, if you haven't yet guessed it, here's my tagline. I'll start from the top. I'm Emily Elaine, and you're listening to Ninth Draft, the podcast for the strategic novelist. I'm excited about it, mostly because I was able to come to a decision. Sometimes it's the little things, you know? But I'm even more excited about today's episode. I could have chosen one of two topics for this week because their logical order in the series is interchangeable, so I left it up to the lovely writing community on Twitter. And I'm so glad I did because you guys voted for the topic I was secretly wishing to cover. In fact, I've been looking forward to it since I first started researching for the show. Without further ado, today we are discussing the art of torturing our protagonists. Cue the maniacal laughter. But... Before we can start unpacking this loaded gift bag, allow me to explain its context within the greater story logic. Since story is how the protagonist changes due to what happens to them in pursuit of a difficult goal, what happens to them is the plot, which is, in broader context, what we'll be covering today. Though, more specifically, we'll be discussing the conflict and adversity within the plot that will be endured by and elicit change within our protagonists, therefore eliciting the actual story. Now, it brings me great joy to present today's call to action. You must, without any hesitation or mercy, torture your protagonist. If you're anything like me, this both thrills and deeply disturbs you. I get all amped up for emotionally gruesome scenes. I stay up late into the night drinking way too much coffee to reach and complete them. But when it comes down to the actual page, I cry like a toddler being weaned off their bottle. I love my protagonist. If he magically materialized into reality, I'd give him a big hug and probably cry while apologizing for all the horrible atrocities I've forced him to endure. But, as writers, we cannot bend. We must be strong for the sake of the story, and zooming in on the functional specific, the plot, because our protagonists won't change on their living room couch watching Dexter till 2am. Rather, they need to suffer and survive through external circumstances that will change their beliefs, therefore internal nature. So, let's break down four key steps of torturing our poor main characters. First in the lineup. Make sure that everything they do to try to fix a situation actually makes it worse. A decision your protagonist makes in one scene incites the action in the next scene. This may seem obvious, but for most writers, it takes time and practice to get into the swing of this cycle. Because although this process translates into our real lives, because although this process translates into our real lives, We don't have an outsider's view of our lives. We are our own protagonist and therefore do not constantly analyze the cause and effect from one small event to the other. Occasionally, we might think, oh, I decided to press snooze seven times. 
Maybe that's why I'm 20 minutes late to work. But this is a rare glimpse we take into the constant cycle through which we and our protagonists live. But this is a rare glimpse that we take into the constant cause and effect cycle through which we and our protagonists live. Due to this principle of decision equals consequence, the decisions, the actions our protagonists take cannot solve the greater issue too soon. If we let our protagonists' well-made plans work right off the bat, then we'd be writing a long series of sweet but dull flash fiction pieces, not a novel. Not only must the protagonist continue to fail to solve the greater conflict, they must make it worse with every attempt to fix it. Otherwise, we're de-escalating the stakes and not building up for the climax of the story in which our beloved protagonist will learn their lesson, aka the theme, solving their internal conflict, and in an epic heart-pounding chapter or two, finally solve the external conflict, wrapping up the plot. Let's call this concept the irony factor, since it creates a powerful sense of situational irony that creates tension that pulls the reader into the emotional thicket. I can first remember experiencing the irony factor when I was reading a biographical novel called The Island of the Blue Dolphins in elementary school. Here in California, children read it statewide because it's a story of a young Native American girl who was abandoned on her island off the southern coast of California and survived her on her own for years. In the beginning of the story, young Karana's tribe is being shipped from their island to the Spanish missions, but Karana's little brother is missing from the boat. He ran back to retrieve his favorite toy. So Karana instinctually leaps off the ship and swims back to take care of her little brother, thinking she's saving his life. But only a few nights later, he disobeys her orders and sneaks out into the night to face the pack of wild dogs that have been hounding them. Tragically, he's killed, leaving 12-year-old Karana alone on her abandoned island. Every effort Karana makes to save herself thereafter also backfires. But Karana's story is about her learning to make peace with her new existence and learning that her life, no matter how trying and lonely, is intrinsically valuable. If her little brother had survived, if the Spanish had come back for them, if her efforts hadn't been in vain, then her story wouldn't have been one of survival through trial. In fact, there wouldn't have been much of a story to tell at all. So far, our protagonist is trying to solve conflict, but all of their efforts are backfiring. But where is the conflict originating from in the first place? You guessed it, the infamous and most beloved antagonist. Now, I will be referring to the antagonist as a traditional villain, but many works feature antagonistic forces, such as a cruel environment or an evil society. In either of these cases, the antagonistic force must be embodied and made specific within a particular thing or person. For example, in George Orwell's 1984, the concept of totalitarianism is the antagonistic force. But... This concept is embodied within the character O'Brien, who is loyal to the estate. Totalitarianism itself could not strap a rat cage over Winston's head. A concept does not have hands to do or mouth to speak. Any antagonistic force needs specific embodiments, otherwise there can be no active conflict, and therefore no plot, and so on. 
I'm sure you understand the chain of effect, nature, of story at this point in the game. Now, in addition to being specific, our antagonist must also be present. If our book is a classroom, we want our antagonist to have near-perfect attendance. It's not enough to talk about the antagonist. They, or their forces, let's call them minions because it's fun, must make an appearance within the story, like, as soon as possible. They can't start class halfway into the semester. They have a lot of work to do because they are the master inventor of conflict. The goal is to drop the protagonist, and therefore the reader, into long-standing, high-stakes conflict that must be resolved within X amount of time. So, it is usually the protagonist who's the new kid in class. The antagonist should already be seated, smiling, and waiting for them to discover the havoc they've been wreaking. Consider Harry Potter. Little Harry first goes to Hogwarts years after he who shall not be named rose to power and even murdered Mr. and Mrs. Potter. As readers, we know from the very first chapter that little Harry will have to face he who shall not be named, and that he's way in over his head with this long-standing, very bloody business. Now, imagine if Harry's parents hadn't been killed. In fact, Voldemort had yet to wreak havoc. So, the first chapters of the book are about a wizard boy, who goes to Hogwarts, as all good wizard kids do, plays Quidditch, sneaks around the castle a bit, and eventually Voldemort shows up, out of the blue, and starts causing trouble. First of all, there would have been no story question of will Harry face the bad guy who killed his parents? Secondly, Harry's identity would be sound in his wizardry, so it wouldn't be a story about a young boy discovering who he is and that he has value. It would be an entirely different, less heartwarming story. All that to say, we probably wouldn't have made it past this chapter two, and if we'd kept reading for some odd reason, we'd be like, who's this gray slithery idiot when Voldemort finally did materialize into the story? Now, I know what you're thinking, but Voldemort isn't actually present until later in the book. True, but he is still at work. Remember, Harry, Ron, and Hermione spend a lot of time unraveling the mystery of the stone and who is trying to steal it. They blame Snape for the strange happenings around the castle, because honestly, who wouldn't? But it turns out to be the wimpy teacher, Quarrel, who, as they suspected, had been dealing with the devil. Although Voldemort cannot be physically present in the room with Harry until later in the book, he is always at work through his minions. Now, Take a moment to imagine the first Harry Potter book without the mystery of the stone. It would be more like a documentary, a day in the life of a Hogwarts student. As beloved as Rowling's world building is, it would hardly be intriguing in a documentary fashion. Story needs a sense of momentum, a question that pulls the reader along page by page. Will Harry be able to uncover the mystery and stop Voldemort from getting the stone? Will Karana find the will to survive and live long enough to be rescued? We know this to be the story question, and it stems from the conflict that is actively created by a specific and present antagonist. 
It's easy to see the importance of an almost constantly present antagonistic force when we're looking on a story from a bird's eye view, but writing our own story is an entirely different game. While reading, our brains ignore the mechanics of story so that we can fall for the illusion of experience, so we can step into the shoes of our protagonist via our trusty mirror neurons and learn vicariously. Just as we can drive without knowing how to build a car, we can read without knowing the infinite complexities of writing a book. But we writers are the builders, not the drivers. And just because you know how to drive a car does not mean you know how to build one. Yet many writers believe that because they can recognize a good story while reading means they can write a good story. Thus, when they go to write, many, and I do mean many, of the mechanics go away. I am passionate about rectifying the particular story malfunction of the absent antagonist because I've beta-read numerous well-intended manuscripts that suffered greatly from it. It's heartbreaking to read, really, because there can be so many wonderful aspects about the writer's work. I might love their protagonist. They might have built a beautiful world. But due to the interconnective nature of story, this one malfunction means the downfall of their work. When I say absent, I mean that quite literally. The antagonist, as in the individual or their minions, don't show up for the first 300 pages. But wait, Emily, what if the characters talk about the villain? I mean, he's going to come around in the end. Let me shoot straight with you. Your antagonist needs to be present and constantly creating conflict. Otherwise, it pains me to say, your plot will be a big fat flop. And what does a protagonist learn from a big fat flop? Squat, nada, nothing. Therefore, there's no story and you're left with 350 pages of well-intended fluff. If you think that sounds harsh, good. Truth hurts, especially when it comes to our work into which we pour hours and basically our soul. But Sometimes it takes just one solid piece of honesty to set your work on the right track. My critique partner, who is also one of my closest friends, gave me unapologetically honest feedback a few years ago while beta reading my fourth draft. His advice made me realize I needed to scrap the entire story and start over. I cried, ate some chocolate, cried a little more, but then I dried my tears, bought myself a new notebook, and started brainstorming a different approach to the story, and thank God for my critique partner's honesty. I'd been considering publication after the fourth draft. You guys know I wrote nine drafts, right? Hint, the title of this whole establishment? I can promise you it was worth every single rewrite, every last hour, every last tier, to write the story I'm currently editing. So if I come across as blunt, suggesting your plot could be a flop, it's because I want you to have the know-how how to fix that flop and write your best story. I swear, I'm not just an overly confident jerk, although I do have those moods. I have immense empathy for my fellow writers, and I really want to see you succeed. Besides, I'm counting on you to write my next favorite book. Somebody please, for the love of literature, write me a heart-wrenching, violent, high-stakes cyberpunk novel already. I mean, really, is it too much to ask to read a book in my own subgenre? Sorry, moving on. Please comment if you're writing one. Like, I'm, I'm being serious. I will beta read it. Anywho, back from that side note vacation and on to the business of torturing our protagonists. 
let's actually take a closer look into the cognitive reasons why we want our protagonist to suffer. Rather, why does story demand that our protagonist must suffer? If story is how a person changes in pursuit of a difficult goal, why can't this pursuit be a positive experience? After all, Emily, not everyone writes high-stakes, highly violent science fiction. Some writers prefer to take a more contemporary, less bloody route. Well, more power to you. But just because you write contemporary or romance in which the stakes are interpersonal and less horrifying doesn't mean you're off the hook. You still have to put your protagonist through their own personal hell. Bouncing back to the why. When we read or even watch a movie, our mirror neurons react to what the protagonist is experiencing. If you need proof, watch a horror movie with some friends and watch their reactions. Chances are you'll catch them drawing their legs off the floor, cringing, or even screaming. So you're not into horror movies? That's fine. Watch The Lion King with some friends and see how they tear up as Simba cuddles his dead father's paw. Your friends only knew Mufasa for several minutes of screen time, but that grief they're feeling derives from empathy or the reaction of their mere neurons. And as readers or viewers, we're not just feeling for the protagonist. There's a greater psychological purpose for our mere neurons working overtime. The biological purpose of this emotional reaction is so that we will learn whatever lessons of literal or social survival that the protagonist is learning. Back to Harry Potter. It's such a marvelous series for young people because Harry discovers his worth, even in the midst of adversity, which is something every young person must also do. Sharing this journey with Harry helps kids experience the same phenomenon with him. Sharing this journey with Harry helps kids experience the same phenomenon within themselves. But just like people, protagonists don't change unless they're pressured to change. It can be explained in simple physics. Nothing moves unless there is force applied. Our protagonist needs motivation to change, and there is nothing more motivating than fear of suffering. For example, in my book, Baby, The Born Weapons, my protagonist, Abesco, is terrified of his race, particularly his family, being exterminated. There are many events in which this comes too close to call, or he loses a loved one, and this suffering and fear propels him forward towards great political power until he eventually is able to take until he eventually is able to secure the safety of his own kind. Now, if he didn't suffer, say he was a sociopath and simply didn't suffer from the annihilation of his own people, he wouldn't have the motivation to move forward and to change. It wouldn't be the same story, more like a twisted science fiction version of Dexter. It is trial by fire through which our protagonists become heroes. It is suffering that forces them to change. So call on your inner sadist to torture your beloved main character. Make sure their efforts backfire. Don't give them too much of a break. I know, I'd love to give Abesco a day off to process his trauma, change some bloody bandages, and I don't know, sleep? But that would be de-escalating the plot, and we can't have that, can we? Nope. De-escalation is a big no-no. And more importantly, we need to make sure your trusty antagonist is there to churn up plenty of conflict for your protagonist to tackle. 
please be good writers and don't let your antagonist be truant. Really, it's just bad parenting. Speaking of good writers, it's time to wrap up and it's time for our weekly shout out. Stick around for this. You could be featured in a shout out at some point and you'd want your fellow writer to listen too. Yes, that was in fact a miniature guilt trip. Brutal honesty strikes again. Emily G. Clegg is an incredibly talented writer and just a ball of sunshine type of person. She's currently writing a contemporary novel about a young woman who escapes the confines of a radically religious home and arranged an abusive marriage to live on her own and learn to appreciate love in a new way, specifically the many varied forms a family can take. Honestly, I can't wait for Emily's book to come out, but in the meantime, we can support her by following her in the link in the description. Before we go, I have a quick announcement. The launch of Ninth Draft Club was a huge success. Thank you to everyone who signed up and swung by the site this weekend. If you don't know, Ninth Draft Club is my online writers group. Every Monday, starting today, teams hold a discussion centered around the topic of the latest episode. So this week, in the very first club session, we'll be discussing the struggles our protagonists endure and how they change from it. I am passionate about getting writers truly connected. The way to a successful career is through genuine and personal networking, especially for us writers. So this forum is designed to help you become close to a team of writers who will support you. You can find more information and even become a member by going to the site in the description. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you're finding this content helpful. I'd love to hear your questions, concerns, and opinions in the comments, so scroll on down. I wish you have a productive and enjoyable week, and I'll see you next week on Ninth Draft. Happy writing. Mm-hmm.